0: Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Luke and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. Uh, Open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter 15 is where we're gonna be. And as we are turning there, have you heard the one about the time that Jesus and Satan got in an argument? Uh, Jesus and Satan just couldn't stop arguing back and forth about who had the better computer skills. And this just went on day after day after day until finally God the Father said, hey, that's enough of this, you two. I'm just tired of all the bickering. We're gonna settle this thing once and for all. I'm going to give you each an hour to demonstrate your computer skills, and then when the timer is up, I'm going to be the judge about who really is the best. So Jesus and Satan both said, okay, God the Father starts his timer. They pulled out their keyboards, and they just started typing away. I mean, they Google searched, and they faxed documents, and they imported images, and they exported Word docs as PDFs, and they color-coordinated expel spreadsheets, and they made charts and graphs and genealogy reports, and Jesus and Satan, they performed every every computer function known to mankind, and even a few that were only known to them. And as they worked, Jesus, His fingers just flew with all the power of heaven, and as Satan worked, He was fast as, let's just say He was fast, okay? Um, <laughs> but All of a sudden though, with 10 minutes left on the timer, something happened, lightning struck, and in heaven, the power went out, and their computer screens went blank. And Satan's sitting there, and he's staring at his blank computer screen, and he's furious, and he's screaming every curse word known in the underworld, and Jesus is there, and he's looking at his blank computer screen, and he just waits patiently. But then after nine minutes passed, one minute left on the timer, the power in heaven comes back on, and Satan starts typing away, and he's looking everywhere, and he's saying, it's gone. It's gone. All my work that I spent an hour doing, it's all gone. Meanwhile, Jesus reboots his computer, clicks print, prints out all the files he'd worked on, turns them into God the Father. And Satan, he's furious about this. He says, what in the world? He must have cheated. How come all my work is gone? And Jesus now gets to turn it in and win the contest. And God the Father just shrugged, and he said, well, Jesus saves. (laughs) Thanks for laughing, guys. That was a a pity laugh, but I'll take it, okay? Now, I will endorse neither the theology nor the comedic value of that joke this morning. Let's just make that really clear. But I do love the punchline. Because it's true, isn't it? Jesus saves. Now, Now, I could ask you this morning, hey, how does Jesus save? And my guess is you might even respond with two other words. You might say, well, Jesus saves because Jesus died, We know that there's something about Jesus' death on the cross that leads this statement to be true, Jesus saves. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 today, and we're going to be in the text where we're going to read about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And to be honest, as I was approaching this and working on this sermon, like, this is heavy. This is a big deal. This is the pinnacle moment of all of human history. How do we approach this and do the text justice? And there's a number of ways that we could walk through Mark chapter 15 today. Uh, We could walk through Mark chapter 15, and we could take the angle of describing what the process of ancient crucifixion was like, the bloody, gut-wrenching violence of being crucified. And man, if you want to be humbled by what your Savior has done for you, you should go back and watch again Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ if it's been a while. It's pretty accurate. That's what Jesus endured on your behalf. And yet, as you'll see, Mark doesn't really get into any of those gory details today, and so neither will we. There's another angle we could take. We could walk through Mark chapter 15, and we could ask the question, how? Like, how is it that the death of some peasant carpenter on a Roman method of execution 2,000 years ago saves us for all eternity today? How does that work? How does the cross work? Save us? And and we could talk about Jesus being our high priest. And we could talk about Jesus being our sacrifice. And we could talk about Jesus being our victorious conqueror. And we could talk about Jesus being both just and justifier. And we could talk about Jesus being the second Adam. And Jesus being our ransom. And Jesus being the one who absorbs the wrath of God the Father on our behalf. We could talk about Jesus being the one who conquers sin and death and the powers of evil through His death on the cross. All of those things are true. And yet, Mark makes no effort here in chapter 15 to tell us how Jesus' death saves us. If you want to know more about that, you can read the rest of the New Testament. The letters talk a whole lot about that. But Mark instead today, here in chapter 15, I think he's just a little more interested in having us just kind of soak in the story itself and let that do the work. And so we're gonna do that today. We're gonna read a pretty long chunk of text. We're gonna read Mark chapters 15, verses one through 39 together. We'll do our normal deal. I'll read out loud the words in white. And I'd ask you to join me in reading out loud the words in yellow, and we'll stop and start a little bit along the way, so bear with me. But center your heart, because this is the story of how you have been saved. Mark writes this. Very early in the morning the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. "'Are you the king of the Jews?' asked Pilate." pause right there here for just a second. This is the climactic question of the gospel of Mark. As you know, Mark's first half that we walk through, chapters 1 through 8, the whole goal is to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the one true king. And then the second half of Mark's gospel, chapters 9 through 16, the point is to prove to you that the Christ is headed for a cross, that, that the king is actually going to be crucified. And yet up until this point, like Jesus hasn't just come out and said, hey everybody, I'm the one true king, I'm the Messiah, do you want to follow me? it's been a lot more subtle than that. Mark has been hinting at it all along. He's been saying, oh, look, Jesus fulfills prophecy, and oh, look, Jesus' disciples are starting to think He might be someone special, and, and, and oh, look, the demons are recognizing who Jesus is, and look, Jesus has power over disease, and He has power over nature, and He has power over sickness, and He has power over demons, and He has power over death. Could it be who who could he be? And now here we are at the climactic question, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? And please understand that at any point in those previous 14 chapters, if Jesus would have come out and said, yes, I am the king, then people would have flocked to him. They would have rallied around them. They would have formed an army. They would have done anything to protect him and to lead him to the throne. It would have benefited him. But now if he says, yes, I am the king, the only thing he gets is a death warrant. But now, of all times, Jesus says yes. You've said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. And the reason Pilate was amazed there is that he knows what this means. If Jesus will just kind of weasel his way out of those charges, Jesus can walk. Pilate wants to let Jesus go. If Jesus will say, no, 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 I'm not the king, I'm, I'm just I'm more of a prophet, okay, flog him, let him go. If, if that's all it is, then uh, uh, why does Rome care about blasphemy and Jewish religious laws, as long as he's not a threat to the empire? But if Jesus claims to be the Messiah, if he claims to be the Christ, if he claims to be the king, there's only one way this ends, and we know that because other people had claimed to be the Messiah before. If you read through the rest of the New Testament, and then if you, there's an an external historian who's a Jewish secular historian named Josephus who writes about some of these events happening around the time of Jesus' life. And we know that in and around Jesus' day, there were at least 18 wannabe messiahs that we know of. And all 18 of them met the exact same fate. The book of Acts and a Jewish historian named Josephus, they tell us about um, there's this guy named Thudis who is one of them. He claimed to be the Messiah, literally, Thudis Christ, claimed to be the Christ. And Thudis said he was going to part the Jordan River, said he was going to knock down the walls of Jerusalem, but Rome came along, oh, you claim to be king. They capture Thudis and his followers and decapitate them in front of the Jewish crowds. Acts also mentions another wannabe Messiah by the name of Judas the Galilean. And the book of Acts talks about how he appeared in the days around Jesus' birth, and he led a revolt in the region of Galilee, and yet Rome, once he claimed to be king, came and they captured Judas the Galilean and his 2,000 followers and crucified them all. And then once they were dead, Rome left up all 2,000 of those crosses on the roadsides in Galilee so that they could send a very clear message. This is what happens to people who claim to be king. We've got more crosses Now, remember, Jesus would have grown up in the region of Galilee as a little boy, seeing these hundreds and hundreds of crosses lining the road. Jesus knew exactly what happened to people who claimed to be the Messiah. And yet, we're going to keep reading here in just a second through Mark chapter 15. And look at the royal imagery that Mark uses over and over again. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who'd committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. "'Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews?' asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. "'What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews?' Pilate asked them." "'Crucify him!' they shouted. "'Why? "'What crime has he committed?' asked Pilate. "'But they shouted all the louder, "'Crucify him!' "'Wanting to satisfy the crowd, "'Pilate released Barabbas to them. "'He had Jesus flogged "'and handed him over to be crucified. "'The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, "'that is the praetorium, "'and called together the whole company of soldiers. "'They put a purple robe on him,' Then they led him out to crucify him. So Jesus has been flogged, and that was a brutal process in and of itself. Sixty percent of the people who were flogged died. If you flogged ten people, six of them would die. And so Jesus has already beaten to a pulp. Now he's forced to carry this 100-pound crossbeam up a hill to Calvary, Golgotha, where he is going to be executed. I've been to Jerusalem. I've walked that road that Jesus would have walked, the Via Dolorosa. It is not an easy walk. It's an uphill climb. Jesus is weak, and so they have to get some help to help him carry the cross. Mark says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So, a man named Simon is helping Jesus carry the cross. Isn't that ironic? You'll remember that just a few hours ago, Jesus was with another Simon, Simon Peter, kind of the leader of his 12 disciples, and Jesus had already told Simon Peter, hey, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to carry a cross, And Peter had had, had said to Jesus, Jesus, I will never deny you. I'll never leave you, even if everybody else does, even if I have to die with you. And yet here it is at this cross-carrying death moment, and Simon Peter is nowhere to be found. There's another Simon in his place. Mark continues. He says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him shaking their heads and saying, "'So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it again in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself!' In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. "'He saved others,' they said, "'but he can't save himself. "'Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, "'come down now from the cross "'that we may see and believe.'" Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, hey, leave him alone. Let's, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you might remember way back at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter one, verse one, we read on the very first Sunday of January that this is how Mark starts this whole story of Jesus's life. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Seems pretty plain and straightforward, but that is a theological hydrogen bomb, and here's why. Remembering where Mark is as he's writing this whole story, Mark is in the city of Rome in the 60s AD. Now, you gotta understand what's happening in Rome in the 60s A.D. The emperor's name was Nero, and Roman emperors like Nero demanded to be worshiped as a son of the gods. That's the phrase they used. That was the official term. Now, Rome didn't actually care who you worshiped. You can worship whatever gods you want to worship. Worship your little tribal deities, depending on where you live. Worship your little family ancestors, all that. You can worship whoever you want in Rome as long as you also worship the emperor. This practice of worshiping the emperor as a son of God was what held the entire empire together. So, if you denied that the emperor was a son of God, well, that was rebellion, that was treason. And so Mark here steps onto this scene in Rome in the 60s AD. And in the 60s AD in Rome, Nero is literally going insane. He has burned down a third of the city of Rome, and he blamed the fire on the Christians and used that as an excuse to start killing the Christians. He would dip Christians in oil and put them on stakes and light them on fire to provide light for his gardens at night. And there's earthquakes that are wreaking havoc across the Roman Empire. The Roman army has just been sent across the Mediterranean Sea to Jerusalem to to squash an uprising. And the year after that, they'll end up burning the city and knocking down the temple. Nero himself will commit suicide. And the year after he commits suicide, four emperors will each hold the throne over the course of one year. You want to talk about political chaos. Four emperors jockeying for position, trying to see who's really in charge. And each one of those emperors emperors would claim that they are the real new beginning, that they are really the one bringing good news, that they are the one who is the true Son of God. And Mark steps onto that scene and drops a hand grenade on the political playground of the most powerful empire that the world has ever known. And he says, actually, that one crucified peasant carpenter in Galilee the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, there's a new sheriff in town. This is audacious, what Mark says. And now here we are in Mark chapter 15 at the end of Mark's gospel account, and he bookends it with this exact same truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the emperor is not the one who's really in charge, and that the real king is that one who's hanging dead on a cross. And of all people, when Jesus dies on a cross, the religious leaders don't get it, Jesus' family doesn't get it. Jesus' disciples don't get it. The one who gets it, of all people, is a Gentile. And not just any Gentile, it's the man who is overseeing the execution of Jesus, a Roman centurion who says, truly, this was the Son of God. It's not the emperor. This is the one true king. Don't you understand how shocking this is? Now, um... Just go with me in your imagination. To Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. Forty days after that, he ascends into heaven. He ends up sending his Holy Spirit on his followers, and the early church is born. So imagine you're with the early church there just a few weeks after Jesus died and rose from the dead, and you're in a meeting. Let's say the early church has hired a marketing firm. Okay, Let's say the early church hires a marketing firm to kind of get their brand out there. They want to design a new symbol, a new logo, since they're kind of a new organization. Imagine you're sitting in a marketing meeting with that firm. Firm at the early church. And the marketing folks said, uh, hey guys, uh, thanks for coming, thanks for being here. You know, since you guys are, uh, you're, you're kind of a new religion, you, you, you don't have much financial weight, you know, you, you don't have much of a slice of the kind of religious market share yet. Not very many people know about you. It's really important that we choose a logo for you all that will have some appeal to the masses. We want to choose a logo that people are really going to like. And the marketing firm, they start walking down through all these potential logos for the early church. You know, you guys could... Uh, you could, have a, you could have a cradle, like a, like a crib for a logo, since you guys believe that God came to earth like, as a baby. That definitely makes you unique. It's kind of appeals to families, you know. Uh, you, maybe maybe for a logo you could have like a, a carpenter's workbench or a hammer and chisel, since, since you guys think God sent his son to be like a carpenter. That kind of dignifies manual labor, appeal to the masculine crowd, kind of that every man appeal of, of Jesus, the son of God. That, that's good. Or, or maybe you could have... Uh, Like a boat logo. Boats make really cool pictures. Jesus said, You're gonna go fish for people. Jesus taught from boats. A lot of his followers were fishermen. I think a boat would be a cool logo. Or maybe. Maybe like a basin and a towel. We could make a cool image out of that. Jesus has washed your feet. He said you're supposed to wash other people's feet. That kind of self-sacrificial love, that, that's cool about Christianity. Maybe a basin and a towel would be a good logo. Or maybe maybe you could have a dove for when the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus for when he was baptized. You could have a, You could have a mustard seed for a logo. That's the kind of faith that Jesus asked from you. Maybe you could have a logo that's like a loaf of bread. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a little pinch of yeast in a dough. It could be like a a loaf of bread or maybe maybe like a flame. Flames are cool logos. You know, when the Holy Spirit fell on you, the tongues of fire that you guys all saw, or, you know, obviously the logo we should pick is like the empty tomb. That's kind of the center of the whole thing that authenticated Jesus' claims, right? And yet they didn't pick any of those, did they? Those are all good, and all those pictures have deep truths that we love attached to them, but what has been the enduring symbol of our faith throughout the centuries? The cross, of all things, the cross. And I think today that maybe Mark just wants us to marvel at that for a moment. Let's say I said to you this morning, okay, uh, take your church face off, like, just be honest with me, okay? Um, let, let, let's, let's just shoot straight with each other this morning. Brag to me a little bit. Tell me what makes you awesome. Because my guess is every person in the room, you, you've got some skills, you've got some accomplishments, you've got some aspect of your personality that makes you great. Tell me what makes you awesome. Just like boast to me for a second. Now, now think about how people in the world might, might answer that question. If you're LeBron James, you can boast about scoring the most points in NBA history. If you're Tom Brady, you can boast about winning seven Super Bowls. If you're Elon Musk, you can boast about being the richest man in the world. If you're Taylor Swift, you can boast in your singing. If you're Morgan Freeman, you can boast in your voice. If you're Rachel Ray, you can boast in your cooking. If you're Tom Hanks, you can boast in your acting. If you're Joanna Gaines, you can boast in your style. Think about some some Bible heroes, how they would answer that question. If you're Adam, you could boast in being the first person that God ever made. If you're Noah, you could boast in the ark. If you're Methuselah, you could boast about being the longest person to ever live, like the oldest person ever. If you were Jacob, you could boast that you wrestled God Himself and didn't tap. If you're Moses, you could boast that God gave you the Ten Commandments on the mountaintop. If you're David, you could boast in killing Goliath. If you're Esther, you could boast that God used your royalty and your beauty to alter history. If you're Daniel, you could boast that you survived the night in the lion's den. If you're Mary, you could boast that you gave birth to the Savior of the world. If you're Peter, you could boast that you walked on water. If you're John, you could boast that you're the disciple that Jesus loved. If you're Paul, you could boast in being the greatest preacher, writer, theologian, and missionary in church history. But the amazing thing is, actually, Paul does tell us what he would boast in, that, hey, if I'm going to brag for a minute, here's what I'm going to brag about, Paul says. And look at how he answers the question. He actually says, may I never boast except in the cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, please understand, Paul's resume was way more impressive than yours or mine, (laughs) And yet he says, actually, the only thing I have to brag about is, of all things, a cross. You and I. That's all we have to boast in, he says. Now, I know that sounds rather abstract and theological, and and it's hard to understand what impact that has on your everyday life, so hang with me here for just a second. Um, Here's why it's important that we keep the cross front and center. Here's why it's important that we keep this story right in the middle of our vision, I heard a story about a grandfather and a grandson who were sitting on the front porch one lazy summer afternoon, and uh, they're just sitting in their rocking chairs, and there's six dogs that were taking a nap on the porch steps, and they're just kind of hanging out, when all of a sudden, about 100 yards off in the distance, a rabbit pops out of the underbrush and takes off across the yard and runs back into the woods. And one of the dogs sees the rabbit, he perks his head off, barks once, and takes off running after that rabbit. Well, all five other dogs, when they see the first dog run, they perk their heads up, and they start barking, and they take off after the first dog, and, and they're, they're gone. They're in the woods chasing after that rabbit. And the grandfather leans over to his grandson, and he says, Son, let me tell you what's about to happen. In a few minutes, five of those dogs are going to come back, one by one, panting, tongues out, wagging, tired, and they're going to lay back down, and they're going to keep taking a nap on the porch step. But just you wait, because in about 30 minutes, that first dog is going to come back, with a rabbit in its mouth. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And, and when that first dog came back, after it caught the rabbit, the grandson leaned over to his grandfather and said, well, okay, how'd you know that was gonna happen? What's, what's the secret? And the grandfather said, you see, that first dog is the only one who actually saw the rabbit. The others were just a yipping and a yapping because they saw some excitement. Here's what I mean. My guess is there's some of you in the room today who are worn out in your religion. You're dry in your spirituality. Man, Like, just let's call a spade a spade. If you're honest with yourself, you're kind of stale in your love, spotty in your commitment, you've got no real drive or consuming love for the Lord, feels like it's just faded a little bit and just spiritually in your walk with Jesus, you feel like you're that dog coming back, head drooping, tongue wagging, and you're just tired, lukewarm, a little half-hearted if you're honest and and i don't know that that we all go through seasons certainly but my guess is there's some of you who are running this race, you're, you're chasing Jesus because you initially maybe got swept up in the emotion of a great worship set or in the passion of a good sermon, you probably heard it at some other church, you know, and the, or the compelling experience from CIY or a mission trip, or maybe there was a, a, a crisis in your life or in your family that nudged you, man, I gotta get closer to the Lord, or maybe this was what your friends were doing and they invited you, or it's just what your family's always done, and those things are all fine and good, but they won't last. And eventually, you'll end up walking back with your head drooping, exhausted. And I'm here to tell you that you will only have the strength to run this race all the way through to the finish line if you actually keep your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. That's it. So, let's go back to the text here for just a minute. And let's keep the cross right in front of us. And it's actually easier than you think. Because I don't know if you noticed it, but you actually make a cameo in this story did you see yourself in mark chapter 15 i saw you right here in verse 7 where mark says a man called barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising so barabbas is this man who's in prison and pilate wants to let jesus go and so pilate brings out barabbas and he brings out jesus and he asks the crowd which one do you want me to give to you and they said give us barabbas and they take Jesus off to crucify him. You, you might be familiar with that story. But I, I think it's interesting that Mark uses details really sparingly in this story. There's a lot of people's names that he does not tell us. But he does tell us Barabbas' name. I wonder why. Now, I'm just speculating here, but maybe, just maybe, I wonder if Mark wants us to see ourselves in Barabbas. There's a clue in the grammar. If you break this word in half right here, you might be familiar that, that in Hebrew, uh, the, the, the phrase bar was a part of a Hebrew name, and it meant son of. So my official name in Hebrew, if I was an ancient Jew, would be Luke Bar-Matthew. Luke, son of Matthew. That would be my name. So bar just means son of. And then if you take Abbas, Abba, you'll recognize that word in there. Abba is kind of an affectionate Hebrew term for dad. And so, Barabbas means son of the dad, just means son of the father. It's kind of a generic name. I wonder if you and I are supposed to see ourselves in that name, son of the father, daughter of the father. And did you notice the irony that we have the guilty, condemned, petulant Barabbas, son of the father, and the innocent, pure, spotless son of God, the father, And the guilty son of the father goes free, while the innocent son of the father takes his place on the cross. Now, here's the thing about Barabbas Barabbas was not just like a shoplifter, he wasn't like a petty thief breaking into people's homes, he was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. He was a man who had worked to overthrow Rome by force. He wanted to make Israel great again and do it by being his own king. And so Pilate holds up before the people Barabbas and Jesus, and he says, which one do you want? Do you want the way of violence? Do you want the way of force, where you get to be your own king and bring your own kingdom the way you want to do it exactly when you want to do it? Or do you want this way of weakness and surrender and self-sacrifice? And this is the choice that you and I have been offered time and time again, isn't it? Which one do you want? Do You want your kingdom? You want to be the boss? Or do you want him? And time and time again, you and I have said, oh, give us Barabbas. We'll we'll take that. My, My kingdom come. My will be done as I want. Thank you very much. So Barabbas, that's me. That's, that's you. We were the ones standing there worthy of death. We were the ones who were guilty. We were the ones who had done wrong and rebelled against the king, and we knew it, and we did it anyway. We were the ones deserving of the chains. We were the ones deserving of the whip. We were the ones deserving of the cross. That's my cross. And Barabbas, when he gets set free, like shockingly, The reaction that we want to see, what we hope is that Mark would tell us that now Barabbas would bow his knee, and he would look to Jesus, who's wearing his chains and being hung on his cross, and say, thank you, sir, you have taken my place. I will now spend the rest of my life serving and worshiping you, my Christ. But we don't see that, do we? I mean, best we can tell, Barabbas just goes on with his life, thinking it's the people who set him free blissfully unaware that it was the love of the beaten up, bloodied king of heaven in his chains hanging on his cross that had liberated him. But you and I, we have a different chance today. You have a chance today, Barabbas, to see what your king has done for you and to let that love compel you and change you from the inside out. Because the truth of the cross is that God knows your whole story man if you think you're fooling him you're not he knows every dumb thing you've ever done every dumb thing you're ever gonna do he every knows every moment that you're far too embarrassed to ever be honest about he knows every skeleton in your closet he knows every instance of sin and dishonesty he knows the darkness of your past and he knows the weakness of your present he knows your shallow faith and your feeble prayer life and your half-hearted love and your inconsistent discipleship. And in the middle of all that, he looks you in the eyes and he says, I love you. I dare you to trust that I actually love you. Because why would Jesus take Barabbas' place? Because he loves Barabbas and he made Barabbas and he died for Barabbas. You see, Jesus doesn't feel about you the way that you feel about you. God isn't fussy like we are. God isn't narrow-minded and rude and judgmental and legalistic and fickle like you and me because you and I, we waver in our affection and our love is thin and my compassion wears out, but his doesn't. And I, yes, I hope you believe the truth that Jesus died for you, but I also want you to believe that he died for you because he loves you. Do you actually believe that? Billy Graham says there's a whole lot of people who are going to miss out on heaven by 18 inches, the distance from their head to their heart. I know you believe that he died for you, but do you believe that he loves you? And you've heard sermons about it, and you've read books about it, and you've sung songs about it, but do you believe it? Will you boast with me in the cross this morning? Because the truth of the cross is that that earth-shaking, sky-darkening love of God was poured out for you. That the heart that invented love and thought love up was pierced for you. And will you let that love pierce your heart? Because I look around and I see so many lovely people who are consumed by gloom and pessimism and pettiness and fear and self-hatred and despair but do you know Barabbas do you know that he loves you Do you know that even though you mock him and even though you walk away from him and even though your soul is weary and troubled and even though your heart is shriveled up and even though you struggle to trust him and even though you try and you try and you try and you try and you still don't feel like you understand, like you actually get it, he loves you today as you are, not as you should be because you'll never be as you should be, Barabbas. But look at the cross because he loves you. And this church, this is the good news that Jesus is the one true King and he went to the cross because he loves you. And because of that, Jesus saves. Let's pray. Behold, what manner of love is this, our God, that we should be called your children, but that is what we are. And we struggle to believe it, Lord. And we search for love in all kinds of places that rob us of the joy and the satisfaction and the peace that our hearts crave. And we have wandered time and time again. And we have walked away. As You took our place on our cross, we have walked away and thought we earned our own freedom. And so, Father, in our weakness, and in our doubt, and in our questions, and in our joy, we echo the prayers of your servant to say that we ask that you would give us the power, together with all God's people, to know how wide, and long, and high, and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is our prayer. We love you, King Jesus. You're worthy of everything we have to give.